Um, so thankful for uh, the time of worship that we got to spend together elevating, um, exalting God. And, uh, and I look forward now to share what uh, has been on my heart for the last three weeks, the challenge of all the good things that God has given to me in my studying and that I just want to take three weeks and put it into 30 minutes. And it seems that it's difficult. Um, but I'm excited to share what I have uh, this morning with you. So the day that I realized that I wasn't that thankful uh, was when I was on a missions trip in Jamaica with RBC's youth group in, in 2008. We were at a local church, and there was a local pastor who began his sermon with, Look to the people around you and tell them what God has done for you this morning. And so we, we were... You know, we looked around, and all of a sudden, the Jamaican Christians were looking at each other. He got me up this morning. He, my health is okay because of him, and he gave me the energy to come to church this morning. He put food on the table, and they just wouldn't stop. And then all the youth from the, the missions trip were like, whoa, whoa. And we were humbled, and we saw what thankfulness can be. And as I was preparing for this morning, I realized that there's no real chapter and verse in the Bible for how to be thankful, the step-by-step. Because the truth is the Bible tells us of incredible things that we naturally give thanks for when we realize how great they are. The Bible does tell us we should give thanks for everything and in all circumstances. In Philippians 4, 4 4-7 in the NIV, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so we know we should give thanks for everything in, in, in every situation, every circumstance. But even more importantly, to set the foundation of our thanksgiving, the Bible tells us for whom we are to be thankful and to whom we are to give thanks. We are to be thankful for Jesus and we are to give thanks to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He gave his one and only Son. How thankful are you for Jesus this morning? To the extent that you need or desire something, to the extent that you find it beautiful, wonderful, and breathtaking, to the extent that you take delight in it, to that extent you will cherish it. To that extent, you will give thanks to the giver of the gift. And to the extent that we recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, we will give thanks to God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have your word that we can learn all about you in your word. I just pray this morning that that Jesus would be exalted and that we'd see him more clearly. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, 
Thankfully, there was a song about this just before uh, James came up, Knowing You. Uh, and the chorus of that is the main idea of for this morning, which is, we become thankful to God to the extent that we recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We become thankful to the extent that we recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this main idea comes from the letter that the Apostle, Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Christians at Philippi, and it comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 8. And as those um, who've been coming for the last few weeks know, we've been going through Philippians. I'm just going to steal this. Water left by accident by my wife, which was just a gift from God. So first we'll look at Paul's example. And then we'll look at Christ's example. And then we'll look how cherishing Jesus enables us to thank him for everything and in all circumstances. Paul's example, we'll look at how he's thankful in, uh, in every circumstance in the book of Acts. And we're looking at how Paul is all about Jesus in chapters 1 and 3 of Philippians. And Christ's examples in chapter 2 of Philippians. And there's plenty to cover, so let's get started. So Paul's example. So we look at Paul's life. And who, who was Paul before he knew Jesus. He didn't grow up in a Christian family. Paul actually was a Pharisee, was a religious elite. And what was he doing before he met Jesus? He was imprisoning Christians, throwing them in jail. He said he was a violent man. We don't know of the crimes that he committed beforehand, but he was imprisoning Christians um, before he knew Jesus. And then he had this encounter with Jesus that we read about in Acts 9. Um, we don't need to turn to for now, but he gets blinded by this blinding light from heaven. And he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Side note, Jesus so identifies with the suffering of his followers and their persecution, it's like it's his. Why are you persecuting me? Beautiful. Their suffering is his. Their losses are his. This is Jesus. And so Paul has this encounter with Jesus, and then he learns about Jesus, um, and he comes to know Jesus. And then we revisit uh, a, well, the, the book of Acts in Acts chapter 16, uh, where you can find this story of Paul and Silas walking along, and Paul drives out an evil spirit out of a slave girl who could predict the future through this spirit and was getting a lot of money for her slave owner. So Paul drives out this spirit the owner becomes vengeful, and he stirs up the crowd, essentially drags Paul and Silas out to the marketplace. He, 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 they are stripped, they're beaten with rods, they're severely flogged, and finally they're put into jail. And we know, and we've heard a couple times now, how prisons back then were essentially, if no one comes to help you, you're going to die. They're not going to give you food, and it was just terrible conditions and so here Paul is after exercising a demon, and now he's in jail with no way out, or so we seem, or so it seems. Well, we know that in verse 25, so we see that at midnight there's a great earthquake that shakes the jail, and that, um, and actually, sorry, just before that, or before the earthquake, so Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. Can you imagine their welts? They were beaten with rods, stripped naked, and flogged severely. What do they look like with their ankles bound 
in in the in the star uh, bound ankles bound chains and so they're praying and singing hymns to God at midnight when they could be exhausted they could be sleeping but that's their heart and it says the other prisoners were listening to them how would you guys feel if you were Paul or Silas that's kind of beyond right it's just so difficult to imagine what resilient joy and thankfulness that they would worship and thank God during, despite the suffering. And even though the earthquake freed them, they were more concerned about the life of the prison guard who would surely die if they escaped than about their own deliverance. So they stayed and they spoke to him about Jesus and then he got to know Jesus. What a wonderful testimony. What a wonderful story. And so now we saw Paul in jail and now we look at Paul in his heart, in chapters 1 and 3, which say very similar things in different ways. But let's go quickly through chapter 1, and we see the ways where Christ is the bottom line. In, verse three, in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 13, Paul's writing from jail again, a different jail, but he's, he wants to make sure the Philippians actually know that it's for the good that he's in jail, that he's suffering. It's, and what is that good because everybody knows he's in jail for Jesus. And that most of the brothers and sisters are confident in the Lord, and they proclaim the gospel without fear because of his chains. And so he's rejoicing, and he's thanking God that he's in jail. And then others are preaching Christ from self-ambition in verse 18, stirring up trouble for him. He's already suffering in jail, but he's giving thanks because Christ is preached, bottom line. So he rejoices. And in verse 20 and 21, he says that, My hope and expectation is that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we see similar themes in chapter 3 of, of Philippians, verses 7 through 10. And sort of from where, like this is where the, the main um, idea comes from this morning in, in the verse three, uh, verse eight a. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I look at the term surpassing worth, and in the NLT, it's translated infinite value. It makes any other good to Paul seem like nothing because Jesus is of infinite value to him. Whether his past religious advantages of being that Pharisee and, and holding to the law, or whether it's about any kind of social status, whether it is the possessions that he might have or not have, the honor that he might seek or not seek, comfort, nothing compared to Jesus. And it says, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, his, he's his Lord. He's not just knowing about the Lord. He's, it's Paul's personal Lord. So it's not just knowing about him. It's knowing him, it's in, which includes a relationship, personal experiences, and, and intimacy. In verse 9, he consider, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
To know Christ and to put your faith in Christ is to have a righteousness from God. Instead of working and slaving away and trying to prove uh, one's worth, it is putting our faith in Jesus, and that is the bottom line. Anything we add to Jesus to say, and, and now I'm right with God, really nullifies Jesus' sacrifice, nullifies that gift of grace, because you include anything else, and it's all of a sudden, it's saying that Jesus is not enough, and that his sacrifice wasn't enough. And so we put our faith only in Jesus, and that is the only, on, the only um, foundation on which we stand before God. And finally, in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's a little harder. But Paul was undergoing all kinds of suffering, and he was suffering for Jesus. And so in his sufferings, he could learn, really, of the suffering that Jesus had already suffered for him on the cross, becoming like him in his death, that Paul, and he was hoping that he would ultimately sacrificially give himself for others in love, just like Jesus had done for him. Time out. When we consider how Paul values knowing Jesus so much, if you're like me, the tendency might be to feel shame. Oh, that's not me. Uh, that's not my life. I'm, I'm a bad Christian, or I, I don't know any. I, I should appreciate my relationship with him more. I better. Let's step away from that thinking for a second. My purpose in considering Paul's love for Jesus and desire to know Jesus more was to present the evidence of, Christ, of Paul's transformed life, that knowing Jesus is more wonderful than what you currently believe. Imagine you're hiking up a mountain with your friend around sunset. There have been a number of nice views, but the trees have mostly been partly blocking your view. Your friend is 20 feet ahead of you near the summit and gets to a clearing and stops. Their eyes widen. Their jaw drops. And they say, you've got to see this. And you also notice the golden light of sunset hitting their face. And suddenly you're sprinting those last 20 feet like you just started running up that hill like at the very beginning. That's my prayer for you and me this morning. Let Paul's Christ-centeredness in Philippians be an invitation to the heart to reconsider the love of Jesus, that it is higher and deeper and longer and wider than what we currently think. Consider it an invitation to dive deeper into our relationship with Jesus. Paul had a powerful encounter with Jesus that left him forever changed. We may never be blinded and audibly spoken to by Jesus, but God speaks to us through his word, which is living and active, telling us about Jesus, and we have God himself and the Holy Spirit who chooses to dwell in us when we put our faith in Jesus, praise God, and who is truly responsible for the life-changing work in us to be like Jesus, and he will complete that good work as we see in Philippians 1. So chapters 1 and 3, we see Paul's mindset of being all about Jesus and for Jesus. And ultimately how that led to a thankful joy in his heart. And in chapter 2, we have the core teaching about who Jesus was and is and his example of humility in Philippians. So Paul is including this teaching about Jesus and his humility, not because the Philippians were already humble. 
but because they were proud. We see early in chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's there for a reason. And we also hear about problems of a lack of unity in the church. And soon after the example of humility, we see that he gives a command to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, grumbling, in, in verse 14, and grumbling is the opposite of thanksgiving. So where there is pride, there is a lack of unity, and there is grumbling, a lack of thanksgiving. So we peer into chapter 2 of Philippians to see Jesus, to know more of his heart, to help disarm our pride and prepare us for relationship with him and others. And that leads us to give thanks instead of grumble. A quick note on pride. Pride, defined as having too high an opinion of oneself or one's importance. I am the center of my life. I get the praise for my success. Take a moment and look to the person on your left and on your right. And those people probably struggle with pride. And some of you might be saying, this talk really took a turn for the negative, actually. And you're right. Uh, pride is far more negative than we think. It's the silent killer. It creeps in and chokes out joy and thanksgiving by making itself absorbed. Pride says, I'm on the throne, not God. Pride alienates us from each other by always putting down others so we feel better. And pride alienates us from God because if we cannot detect our own sin, if, if we're fooled into thinking that we are the first and last chapter and main character of the story of our lives, we are distanced from God. We are at the center and not God. And so pride is the enemy of relationship with God and with others. And so with the link of pride and thanksgiving, pride cannot receive gifts because it may imply neediness or weakness that we would need help. Pride relishes and dwells only on itself. And if we are so self-centered, so inward-facing, how can we look up to God and thank him? How can we look to each other and thank our neighbor? How can we really see them when we think about ourselves so much? And so Paul presents the humility of Jesus, which disarms our pride so that we can connect with each other and center ourselves in him. So we look at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, and I'm reading from the NIV. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, or directly translated, mind, as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, it's in Jesus that all things are held together, and he's exactly God himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be kept. He had it, but he wasn't going to keep it. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now Jesus, fully God, emptied himself of his divine attributes, became fully man, even taking the form of a servant, a slave, and he obeyed his father even though it cost him his life. 
even by the humiliating, lethal torture of crucifixion. Though Jesus was God, he took on the essence of a human. He came as a helpless baby. He grew up without his heavenly majesty, stooped lower than a servant, and willingly endured death on a cross, fully submitted to God the Father. Now we pause and we think, if Jesus, who actually was God, didn't hold on to his glory and majesty, even though he deserved to. How can I, as a very flawed human, cling to and seek out attention, praise, and applause for myself? If the King of kings and Lord of lords chose to become a lowly human servant and obeyed his father even to death, how low is too low for me? How humble is too humble for me before Christ's incomparable humility? But let's not stop there. The Lord Jesus came down without any majesty or beauty to attract us to him and died that awful death for you, for me. We were spiritually dead and he gave us life. The gospel, nicely summarized by Tim Keller in this one line, which means good, so the gospel, which means good news, says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. More sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe because it took God himself to die for me to pay for my crimes. That was the price on my head. That was what it took but I am more accepted and loved than I ever dared hope because God was willing to die for my sins so I can have eternal relationship with him. Jesus took on your flawed performance record of sin and died so that when the Father, God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfect innocence of his son. And when you finally start seeing the Lord Jesus willingly losing everything for you, emptying himself of his divine attributes, dying for you so that you gain everything in him. You start to understand why Paul talks of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake he lost all things and considers all those things garbage. Jesus gave it all up so he could have you, so you could have him, so that you can have a relationship with him. In Psalm 63, David says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Nothing is better than Jesus, not even life. Not even survival if I don't have Jesus. God's love is better. And that's why Paul could say, To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's greatest treasure was knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And if you turn to Romans 8, and starting at verse 35 in the NIV, we read how he can never be separated from the love of Jesus. So he can give thanks and have joy no matter the circumstance. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And if the bad things of life cannot separate me from the love of Jesus, and I treasure him, I still have what is most precious to me, despite my circumstances. Nothing in this world compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing in this world can separate us from his love. And so we thank him. No one can take away our gratitude for him. What has your heart this morning? What is the thing that in your heart that has surpassing worth? What is your treasure? What is that thing that if you don't get it, it doesn't happen. If you lose it, you won't be happy. Not that we shouldn't long for good things, like a career or a spouse or kids or property or whatever, whatever good thing. But when those things become our ultimate treasure or a precondition to be happy or thankful, it has become like a God in your life and it will disappoint us and crush us. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you that he gave what was most precious to him. His treasure his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life with him. To understand the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, knowing Jesus, it takes a relationship to know about him, but we also need to know him in relationship. So are you spending time with him daily? Are you pausing to contemplate his character? his beauty, in his word? Are you, have, are you stopping to consider, reconsider maybe, the grace that you, we have in him? We can't know Jesus fully without truly understanding his grace that he offers. To the extent that we understand how we were deserving of eternal punishment for our sins, to the extent that we understand how helpless we were to change anything, and to the extent that we understand how costly the sacrifice of Jesus was for us. To that extent, we will understand his grace and give thanks for the Lord Jesus to God the Father. Romans eight thirty-one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us what? All things. He gave us his son. What's it going to hold back that we really need? His good. In James 1.16, sorry, I'm going quickly with between the verses, but it's just the one verse, I'll read it. 
Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good gift is from above. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. God knows our tendency to take credit for our skills or our successes or relationships. Whatever goes well in our lives, we think, was that me? I think I did something there, actually. That was pretty good. So James says, don't be deceived. This is all from God. Career, finances, family, spouse, kids, our skills and ability, any success, any beauty around us at all, any kindness we receive, any spiritual gifts from God, clearly, even our Christian community. These are all gifts that God has given to us that we did not deserve. So once we know that we have Jesus and we didn't deserve that grace, how much then our lives are peppered with new things, new circumstances in which we can see the goodness of God when we know what we truly deserve and what we've actually been given in Jesus and all these good gifts that are from above. It is when we know the grace we have in Jesus that we recognize the innumerable gifts from God that we can thank him for on a daily basis. So we considered how we can never be separated from the love of Jesus. And if we treasure Jesus, we can never never be separated from that love and that treasure. But what, what purpose can there be in the hardship that I'm facing? Paul was suffering clearly for Jesus. But what if I just... There's hardships in my life. I didn't do anything for Jesus to then get hardships, so I'm not suffering for Jesus. Wait. So how can we give thanks to God in every circumstance? Because God is using every circumstance for our good. And that good is becoming like Jesus. So we look at Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. I'll read it. And we know that in all things... God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we look at in all things, in all things, in all circumstances, all the events in our lives. Wait, wasn't Paul just mentioning famine and danger and darkness and and sword and all those, all things. Paul's facing those things, and we shouldn't be surprised that we face those things too. And if anything stays together in this world that is falling apart, decaying over time, it is the sheer gift of grace. If we have good health, it is the gift of grace. So bad circumstances are bound to happen. So even these bad circumstances happen for the good? What good? Like, that was clearly bad what I just went through, and no one can tell me otherwise. It was objectively bad, yes. But it's for a purpose. And what is the best thing that we can possibly be? In fact, the best thing is to be like Jesus. And so the next verse tells us what that good is. The next verse when it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, to have the very same essence, the very same nature of his son, that's the word conformed, so we can be like Jesus. And if Jesus is our treasure, then we will take comfort in the fact that God is not wasting our pain. 
He uses our hardships to slowly chip away in us at the things that don't look like Jesus. Our pride, our self-deception, our self-absorption, these are the very worst things in our lives. These are the things that can truly ruin our lives, ruin, ruin our relationships. We learn that pride alienates us from God and from each other. And so in all things, at the end of our lives, when we can take a step back and look at the whole thing, we will be able to see that though that through it all, God was making us more loving, more humble, more generous, more faithful, more forgiving, and more patient, beautiful like Jesus. What better thing is there than that? And we can thank God during our hardships in advance knowing that that will happen for the good, but sometimes difficult work that he's doing in us, making us like Jesus. I don't know what you might be going through this morning, and this all might seem like that's a lot. But we start not from the end. We start from the beginning, which is knowing Jesus. Entering into relationship with Jesus, we see his worth, see his value. And so in in a natural response, we say, thank you, Lord, for that greatest gift. So we looked at the example of Paul, who could be thankful and rejoice in all circumstances because Jesus was his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is another example of a life transformed by knowing Jesus and resulting in gratitude, but from the 20th century. He was a German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis near the end of the Second World War, something like 38 or 39 years old, because of obedience to Christ. He spent his last two years in prison before he was executed. During his time in prison, at the beginning, the guards acted favorably toward him and secretly took him to the cells of despairing prisoners to minister to them. While he was in jail, he was writing letters to people, encouraging people. He was there for two years, and he still continued to serve Christ there. In the last few weeks of his life, he was was transferred from one prison to the next, and he had no communication with the outside world. And this is from the foreword of uh, a book that he was called Life Together, which is an amazing book on Christian community. This is what an English officer... um, had written down and is in that forward. This English officer was actually a fellow prisoner of his and wrote this about him. Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident and profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I have ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of us all. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment, the thoughts and the resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners the gallows. 
So we said goodbye to him. He took me aside. This is the end, he said. But for me, it is the beginning of life. The next day, he was hanged in Flossenburg. And this says just below that, the text on which he spoke that last day was, with his stripes are we healed. Now we're going to um, have a time where we break bread and we take the cup and we drink the juice that is before us. But first, let me tell you a bit about why we do this. Luke 22, verses 14, 20 in the ESV. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he gave thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Some quick background on Passover. This Passover meal, what was it about? So the Israelites were slaves for 400 years before God saved them in Egypt. Saved them from Egypt. Saved them from slavery. And God had to send a tenth plague before the Egyptian Pharaoh would finally let the slaves go. Let the Israelites go. Where God would put to death all the firstborn of Egypt in this plague. Until they had... And let the, unless they had put the blood of a spotless lamb on their doorframe of their homes. Pharaoh's firstborn was killed. And he finally sent the Israelites away and they were freed. So the Passover festival was instituted to remember every year how God passed over, spared the houses with the blood of the spotless lamb on the doorframes. I love how Jesus says, the earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them before his suffering. Let's just look at earnestly desired here. This was more than a nice meal together. This would be a different kind of Passover than what they had experienced for years. As this meal would be the first meal, gratefully remembering the ultimate Passover event that would happen. The ancient Israelites were protected by the blood of a spotless lamb. But that would be an event that would foreshadow Jesus, the innocent Son of God himself, who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, so that by the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, every last person could be saved. Everyone from all time who would trust in the Lamb of God to be saved from punishment, to be forgiven every last sin because of Jesus. The Passover meal that all those men had celebrated all their lives had always pointed to him, to Jesus, and he was about to share the revelation of this glorious mystery with them. Now, 
now they were they were to break bread and remember his broken body for them. Now they would drink the cup, knowing that it represented his blood spilled for them. And I think about how you know, he earnestly desired to eat it with them. Who was around him? His disciples, and he loved his disciples. But amongst his disciples was Judas, who was going to betray him. And all the other red disciples within a day are going to flee. Peter, who would deny him three times, he earnestly desired to have it with them. The sins, I mean, they, the, when they were the reason he had to die, because their sin, like ours, had to be forgiven, or else they'd be forever separate from him, dead in their sins. Now with them, knowing that they would falter in the future, they would still sin, and they would always need the infinite forgiveness that he was offering to them. And finally, isn't it amazing that Jesus gives thanks to the Father for the bread and the wine, his body and his blood? Jesus gave thanks even as he broke the bread that represented his body. Jesus gave thanks even as he poured out the wine that, rep- that would represent his blood to be spilled. And so we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise him. And as often as we meet together, break the bread, take the wine, in grateful remembrance of the completed work of our Lord Jesus, examining our hearts and praising our Savior as we take the bread and wine. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, we invite you to join us. And if you're not sure, then we didn't encourage you to join in in reflection on Jesus.